travel, it's one of life's greatest pleasures. When we journey abroad, we discover new places and meet fascinating people, but we also gain perspective and take on a wider view of the world around us. That was Trevor Ranges, and I'm Scott Coates. After more than 25 years living and working in Asia, we've developed an amazing network of interesting characters throughout the region. Talk Travel Asia is our way of sharing them with you. Plug in and get connected to hot tips, interesting perspectives, and expert travel advice as we cultivate travel insight through intelligent conversation. Welcome to Talk Travel Asia, episode 87, Unexplored Asia with Stuart McDonald. As a tourist destination, Asia is getting busier by the day. More and more people have money to travel, visa restrictions are disappearing, and traveling by plane is more affordable than ever. Once tranquil sites like Angkor Wat, Kyoto, and others are today packed with tourists. But the good news is there are still tons of wonderful places to visit that are void of crowds. On this episode, we'll chat with Stuart McDonald, founder of online Asian travel website, travelfish.org, about why so many unexplored places remain unexplored. From Bangkok, Thailand, this is Scott Coates, and with me, as always, is my magnificent co-host... Wow, magnificent, eh? It's Trevor Rangers in magnificent Phnom Penh, Cambodia. Hey, buddy. Um, I'm excited because next week I'm coming there and we are going to do an episode or two together. So uh, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. You know, it's uh, just the end of the weekend here. You're going to be here next weekend, which is probably when this mm -hmm. episode is going to be coming out. So uh, right. we, we actually we did an episode together here once. It was uh, our Asia's favorite FCC? watering holes. Yeah, we did it at the was FCC. That it? Yeah. Okay, I remember. It feels like it was like a year ago, but that's probably, what, like five years ago? No, no not five. Sorry, like three? It, I don't know. I mean, it was an early episode, so we'll put a link up to that. Asia's favorite watering holes, I think it was called, or our favorite watering holes. And we did it from the FCC, which was one of them. Um, so yeah. it would be cool to do another episode live here together. Yeah, so I know that you have a bit of history with our guests. Tell me about that. Yeah, you know, it was interesting when he was going to be on the show. I thought we were going to talk about uh, his website, travelfish.org. But uh, apparently we're going to talk about Unexplored Asia, which is even a more interesting thing to talk about. Um, but I did some work for Stuart, and I'd probably call it more exploring the explored than exploring the unexplored. Because I wrote about Bangkok mm. uh, for Travelfish. And uh, I remember Travelfish had some really good maps back in the days. And, and this was before there were Google Maps. So I thought their online maps were great. And I printed them out. And I had to do like an update of all of the guest houses and hotels in Bangkok, of which there's probably more than a thousand. You know, I, I remember just mm -hmm. doing the Kaosan Road area. There were more than 50. There, there was probably close to 100 guest houses that I had to go review or go check out. Really? You know? Yeah, so I just got a guest house. I got a room in a guest house down in Kaosan Road, and I stayed there for like three or four days and just went out every day checking out hotels and guest houses by day and checking out the nightlife by night uh, and then moving over to Silom and staying in Silom for a few days and doing the same thing. So it's kind of interesting, even though I'd, I was living in Bangkok at the time and uh, had been for many years, uh, when you go and stay in these neighborhoods, you, you'd be surprised, man, that you can, you can find the unexplored just within cities where there's people all around you. You know, I've never actually stayed in Khao San Road, ever. In my <laughs> entire, no, my entire travel career. Well, you know, I've known of Stuart for years and I've consulted Travel Fish semi-regularly. But I only met him 
for the very first time in like May or June of 2018. This year, he was in Bangkok. Um, he was going to record an episode with our friends at uh, Bangkok Podcast. And we met for a smoothie very close to my office. And it was a great chat and almost a little bit of a fanboy meeting on my part, as I've greatly appreciated and respected the work he's done for a long uh, a long time and uh, yeah we chatted then and said hey you should be a guest on the show sometime and uh, it's going to happen today yeah you know it's certainly true that uh, travel fish has been around for quite a long time i don't even know we'll find out today when he started it all but mm-hmm. uh it's and it's still around and it's still uh kicking so to speak if fish could kick but uh you know working <laughs> for travel fish made me aware of kind of the changes that were occurring in the travel guide industry because i was in print originally and you know things evolved to online but i think travel fish adapted really well from they used to have pay to print pdfs like if you gave them like three dollars oh, really? yeah you could download the pdf and then they had oh, wow. the iPhone apps with offline maps that were pretty cool. Oh, and now, okay. you know, the website's still around. So it, it's really interesting how he's been able to, to keep it relevant uh, through all these changes in, in the media. Yeah, well, let's bring him in. Originally from Australia, Stuart McDonald now calls Indonesia home most of the time and is the founder of TravelFish.org, one of the best, most comprehensive, unbiased sources of Asia travel information. He joins us on the road today via Skype from Vinh Long, Vietnam. Thanks for joining us, Stuart. Thanks for having me. So, um, just to get started, tell us a bit about yourself, Stuart. I mean, your background, what brought you to Asia? Uh, well, uh, I've been kicking around in Southeast Asia for a little over 20 years now. Um, I came here at the end of a round-the-world ticket, and uh, Thailand was really just an afterthought. I had to pick somewhere to st- at, the, at the last stop of a ticket, Okay. and um, I didn't know anything about it, really, and I sort of got off the plane, and, and I thought, well, this is kind of good, and I've been coming here ever <laughs> since. Okay, so... All right. How did that transfer into, you know, I, I need to make some money maybe, or, hey, I'm really good at finding cool places. Maybe I should tell people about them. How'd you make the transition to starting up Travel Fish? Uh, what's the origin story there? Uh, uh, it was a bit of a long haul. I, I, I came here for, came, I was based in Thailand for quite a few of the early years, and I was just doing six months on, six months off. I come up and sit around on the islands and do nothing and then go go back home when I ran out of money and work in the supermarket or whatever and come back up and so I did that for a few years and then um, I we I traveled to Vietnam with a, a companion and at the time this was the early 90s um, we were using a lonely planet which wasn't uh, it didn't strike us as being all that good um, knowing what I know now about publishing, it's much easier to understand why the book was how it was, but <laughs> I didn't know then. And uh, so Tim and I decided to sort of try and put our notes together as we traveled the country. So we hitchhiked most of Vietnam. And um, by the time I got back to Australia, we put together a, a simple chapter and gave it to a book distributor and said, look, you know, does this sound interesting to you? And they were like, you know, when can you have the book to us? And um, wow. we had we had no idea what we were doing. Um, we had no publishing background, no business background, nothing. We were just sort of made it up as we went. And so we did a Vietnam book. And then as soon as that was finished, the publisher, the distributor, because we self-published it, the distributor said, 
go do another one. So we went back up, uh, not with Tim, but I went with some other friends and we did a guide to Thailand. And um, that one actually did okay. Um, but then uh, then we, um, I came back up. We were going to do a book on Laos and then the currency collapsed. This was in 97. Mm. And mm-hmm. uh, we suddenly doubled our savings and we thought, well, screw doing the book. Let's go traveling. Mm. And so we stopped doing the publishing and then we did uh, fell into other stuff. I was traveling with Sam, who became my wife later on. And um, when we ran out of money, we ended up working in Bangkok at the embassy and we were both at the nation for a while and a few other bits and pieces. And my jobs increasingly had like a website part Mm. to it. And Mm -hmm. I sort of had to teach myself, you know, when you go for a job and they say, do you know this or that? And you say, yes, yes, yes. And then go and buy the books to teach yourself that night. It was that kind of thing. And um, by... Well, it was the early 2000s. I knew how to make a basic website and I had an idea of how to write a a travel guide. And so we pulled the two things together and out of that came uh, a very early version of Travelfish, which was really at the time just a collection of Sam and my favorite places, you know. Cool. Well, when exactly did Travelfish go live online and what makes it different from other online travel you know info sources say such as tripadvisor or lonelyplanet.com um well we went live in uh 2004 um yeah 2004 it was um so we've been around about what's that for yeah 14 years so that's right mm-hmm. um what makes us different um well we're different to something like tripadvisor because all the uh, we we don't we're not crowdsourced material, so all the research is done is done either by myself or one of our uh, writers. So they're all um, paid paid contributors, um, and we don't take freebies and media rates and all that kind of stuff. We always pay our way, um, mm-hmm. which distinguishes us from quite a few uh, of the more traditional travel publishers, um, and. Uh, that that's really it you know i mean we started off for the first two three years we made no money because we had no idea what we were doing and we were just sort of concentrating on places that we thought were cool you know stuff that we liked and when you look at the very early version of the site it was your classic banana pancake Hmm. kind of stuff um but as we've grown up and as we've sort of started doing different things and that kind of thing the the site has sort of grown with us you know very good. Hmm. That's you know. I, actually, I did some work for you. I don't know if you remember that in, in Bangkok many years ago. Yeah. Um, which is kind of interesting. Because um, you know, I was a bit younger as well now too. I haven't been on your website in a while, but has it evolved with you then and your you know where you like to stay and what you like to do? Since it seems like a really personal project, like you like you're in Vietnam right now. Are you there for a holiday slash like doing some research and and then you want to like share those places with people? Um, you came up with this idea about unexplored places. So are you like exploring the unexplored to try and share that information with people? Well, I mean, th- this trip is definitely a, a work trip. I mean, I, I managed to fit in some fun time as you can, you know, but I'm, I'm primarily here to update stuff that's on the site. Um, it, it's been a, the, the business over the years has been very up and down. 
And so we've ended up with some areas of, of coverage that hadn't been updated in a, in a very long time. So part of the purpose of these trips I've been doing to Vietnam is filling in some of the gaps of uh, very old coverage. Mm. And that's what sort of gave me the idea of this topic because I'm traveling through, like Vinh Long, for example, where I am now. I haven't been here in, oh, I don't know, maybe at least 10 mm. years. Um, and from a tourism point of view, I mean, the prices obviously have changed and there's a few more hotels, but there's not a lot else that's different, you know. And one thing that hasn't changed is that there's still nobody here. T tourism wise you know i mean there's a few people in the homestays and that kind of stuff but in the in the town walking around today i haven't seen a single foreign tourist um and this place has been in the guidebooks forever i, I just think it's fascinating <laughs> yeah you know i always found some irony in that fact that like while i spent many years producing travel guide content i i always encourage people to kind of you don't really need the guide go explore right so you know, mm. I don't know. There's some flaw to the system where you're trying to tell people, hey, you should go see this place. But then everybody's going to the place that everyone says they should go. I, I coined the phrase lonely planetivity, which is the, the this attraction that pulls everybody to mm. where the lonely planet tells them to go. Um, mm. You know, how, how mm. do we get people to go to, to, to the different places from as a writer for you? Well, I, I think it's a, a difficult challenge because you're always... Um, you're always competing with the advice that the traveler has been given from, from elsewhere, from like Aunt Nancy, you know, the, the keeping up with the Joneses mm. kind of thing. Aunt Nancy went to Hoi An, so I've got to go to Hoi An, that kind of thing. And um, I think travelers, if they're not familiar with the brand or the writer, you're asking them to take a gigantic leap in, in trust to sort of say, well, don't go to Hoi and go and do this other thing instead because it's a risk, you know, because all of their posse are familiar with this other mm. thing. Um, but I think it's difficult. Like Vietnam has its fans and people who don't like it. But um, I think personally, I find it very difficult to go here and not have a good time. You know, you can go to the smallest provincial capital and it's still a fascinating place and the people are accommodating and helpful. And um, it might not be a top-tier site or something that Aunt Nancy's going to know about, but that doesn't make it an unrewarding experience for you. And so trying to instruct that across to the reader is, um, is challenging, you know, but it's a, it's a good thing to try and do, I think. Telling everyone to go to, to, go to Hoi An is just the, the easy thing to do. So, Stuart, in our emails back and forth getting prepared for this, I mean, we, you mentioned, okay, what makes Bai in Mehong Song province in Thailand so hot and busy mm. versus somewhere like Chengdao in sort of the mid to northern region of Chiang Mai, one so busy versus Chengdao, which isn't so much. So I'm wondering, what do you think are the ingredients or elements that come together to make a destination hot and soon thereafter filled with travelers? I think it, it, it's dependent somewhat on the destination. Um, I mean, Pi had, it, it was um, elevated by Lonely Planet back in the day, you know, in the 90s. Um, okay. And it was in that geographical sweet spot. You know, it was halfway to Mehong Son. It was a really pretty spot. It had a very laid back vibe then. 
um, and it, it hadn't been sort of gentrified by um, other, uh, some of the other people that make up the scene there now. Um, so it was sort of this magical sweet spot and it's sort of built on that and then it becomes this self-perpetuating kind of a, a destination where Changdao was always like a second tier. Um, it's a beautiful spot, there's beautiful things to do, but there was never that um, stick to it that, that Pai had. Um, but it could easily have been the other way around, you know, like Changdao was halfway to, to what, to Tartan or Fang, I, I need to check my geography, but I mean, it's on the, on the road to Chiang Rai at least. And I mm. mean, um, there's no reason why it couldn't have been more popular than it is. I mean, it has grown in the last few years, certainly. But I mean, that's Thailand for now, you know. Um, but I, I think there's a lot of destinations like that. When, when it was more difficult for travelers to go to Laos and Cambodia and Burma, um, people would come to Thailand and they'd spe a lot, spend a lot longer in Thailand. So that's, that was the, the salad days for places like Tapanom and Sangkom and that kind of stuff. Um, mm -hmm. Where now people just don't have the time to do that anymore because they've got to keep on trucking. Um, right. So I think the, the sunshine has passed those towns by, which is, you know, depending on how you look at it, uh, good or bad. Um, yeah. That's a, that's a great example, those two places, because like Bai is great. And I do remember when I first went, you know, probably 17, 18 years ago, it was because it was laid back. But you know what? At the same time, I think travelers gravitate to those places because they know there'll be a certain number of other travelers. There'll be a certain amount of food they can eat. There'll be maybe a movie on somewhere or something. And then like somewhere like Changdao, which you threw out, there is an absolutely beautiful area with mountains and there's there's just no reason that it shouldn't be just as busy so it, it, it's uh kind of cool uh, i i think something that you touch on there when you're talking about the other travelers and i think that's something that people forget about is that particularly when you're a younger traveler or well rather a single traveler hanging out with other travelers is certainly part of the appeal um mm -hmm. and I remember semi-recently I encouraged a friend who was a very frequent traveler to Thailand to come down and travel in eastern Indonesia, which I love traveling in, um, and he hated it because there was no one else for him to meet. He found it socially <laughs> very difficult. He doesn't speak any Indonesian, and he was there. Right. He wanted to like hook up and have fun and all that kind of stuff, and where I sent him, that, that just wasn't going on, you know. Right. Uh, and he's much more comfortable in southern Thailand. Um, so, I mean, it, it depends what people are looking for as well, you know. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. one of the things I, I talked about a little bit in the introduction and, and we touched on there a bit is, you know, sometimes it's really challenging to get people off the beaten path a little bit. Like you mentioned, like they need to be able to trust you. And that's why, you know, I always appreciated the professional writer's opinion in addition to what other travelers say, because you want to try and find information that uh, is from people who are like you, yeah? Um, but but at right. the same time, you know, like, don't you ever feel like you, you want to keep something secret? Like, you, you don't, like, don't tell too many people or don't pass it on. You know, it's better to share. Because lots of times, like, you'll get a tip word of mouth and you'll be like, oh, that sounds like a place. Like, the word of mouth tip almost seems, like, more special. Yeah. So... I, I don't know. I mean, I think it, it, the more you do this, do this kind of work, the more you, you get a, 
a grip on how likely you writing about something is actually going to have a, a concrete effect mm. on it. And I think it goes both ways. Like one of the things that we like to try and do it on Travelfish is highlight locally owned, family owned businesses, that kind of thing. So that you, the, the traveler is putting the money in the local's hand. It's not going to some hotel conglomerate or, or whatever. Um, so on that hand, I want to make a difference, right? I want to steer people to these certain businesses. Um, but in, on the other hand, I don't want to steer everybody to them because then it sort of loses its, its charm and you go back two years later and they've got 52 staff and grandma's, you know, got a, a spa out the back or something. Um, but I guess that, sorry, that makes sense though, to interrupt because then like, if you're saying like where you are right now, there's not a lot of tourists, mm. so you're not going to write a lot of copy about yeah. it, but you'll say, Hey, you know, if you're here, these are some really cool, like kind of mom and pop businesses that you should stay like guest house or homestay or, or restaurant or something. Since only a certain number of people are going to go there anyway, then you're at least directing that small group of people to these good experiences and that are beneficial to the community. Yeah, well. yeah, exactly. I mean, I had a discussion exactly about this uh, uh, this morning with a uh, on on Twitter with a, um, a Saigon-based uh, travel person, and they were suggesting that Instagram, like because of some of the stuff I've been Instagramming through this trip, that I should be a bit more responsible in in what I'm putting out there, because you know mm. um, I think he was over overestimating the deluge of tourists that are going to follow off the back of my photos, but <laughs> but um, <laughs> in theory, yeah, that that's a something to keep in consideration. But in practice, to get to these places, you know, it's a little bit of work, and I know that most travelers who are coming here have very limited a stretch of time so like i've got the luxury of spending three weeks in these towns that i'm kicking around in um but most people won't do that so um they'll have to pick one or maybe two you know so Stuart, i know you were on uh, our friends uh, podcast bangkok podcast a while ago and you and i when we met in Bangkok, talked about over tourism a bit, but what are the signs to you that a destination is over touristed and as a result is maybe no longer what made it attractive and famous to begin with? Well, I, I think it's very dependent on the destination. Um, uh, like everywhere changes, just like the traveler changes. Um, I think that when the, when the locals don't want you anymore, then there's a problem. And I think once it reaches that point, it's a pretty serious problem. Mm -hmm. um, when you've got people going there and they're complaining and they're saying, oh, there's too many people or the, the hotels are all full or the queues are crazy or the traffic's jammed or, you know, it sounds like I'm talking about Bali. But, I mean, <laughs> it's all, all of these things um, come into play with it. I don't think there's one... Uh, one red line for over tourism and then it's like oh my god okay that place is screwed um but it's it's a lot of different things that dovetail in together mm -hmm. um and it's you know it's partly like the media's responsibility through instagram and facebook and twitter and all that kind of marketing um but it's also the destination's responsibility to sort of manage people and take a like saying what is a sustainable level of tourism for this place? How many people do we want to have here? 
um, how are we going to protect it, you know, for, for the uh, environments like coral reefs and that kind of thing, you know. Um, and, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of people that need to get involved and, and, and think about what to do about it. Mm-hmm. It's not really happening enough at the moment. All right. So, you know, you mentioned Bali and some of my examples that I didn't bring up uh, happen to be about Bali because, you know, there's some secret beaches. They're not really secret, but, you know, the, the whole lonely, lonely planetivity that takes everybody to, let's say, Uluwatu. They don't go around to the south side of the Bukit and there's mm. some really beautiful beaches down there. And maybe it's great that those aren't so popular, you know. Um, or even or Ubud. Everybody goes to Ubud, yeah. but then there's all sorts of villages up country from there that are just spectacular and amazingly charming. Like, how? What's your advice for people who want to try and just you know they they don't want to go too far outside their comfort zone? But how do you get them to like? What's the advice for getting out a little bit beyond into those other neighborhoods? Um, then you know, if you're going to a new place, people are a little bit concerned. How do? They, what's your advice for getting them outside of their comfort zone, perhaps? I don't know. I mean, it's a difficult one. I mean, do your research. Do a bit of reading. Um, like, I, I read quite a bit, um, and I find that useful. Um, I carry a paper map, and, I mean, the this trip that I'm doing now is very laid out. I know what I'm doing. But if I was going somewhere different, I would have a map, and, oh, this place looks interesting. I'd just go and check it out, you know. what What's the worst thing that's going to happen? You're going to get there, and you don't like it. So, okay, I can leave here tomorrow. I mean, that's the freedom of travel. And like today, when I was when I was coming to this town from where I was staying before, I had to get a, a motorbike across this island to a, to a ferry. And the monsoon came down, so we both got completely soaked and we didn't have raincoats and everything. And I said, well, let's stop at a coffee shop. And it turned out the guy's family lived there, so he went to his house. And so it was a very nice little cutesy um, experience but it's completely un, un, no one else could replicate it. You know, I can't write about that and say, get this motorbike and get stuck in the rain and go to his mum's house, <laughs> you know. But it happened because I was putting myself out there to let's see what happens, you know. And that's what travel's all about. So if you're in Ubud and you think, yeah, this is overrun with tourists and I'm not enjoying it, well, look at a map and go somewhere else. I mean, it's not it's not like a death-defying kind of a thing. And I think people get sort of, because there's so much, like years ago, sorry, I'm babbling on a bit here, but years ago, you had a choice, rough guide or lonely planner. That was it, right? If you were traveling in Southeast Asia, okay, or moon maybe. Um, that, That was pretty much it. Now there's like a bazillion different sources. So, People can sit down and plan their entire holiday down to like, you know, Wednesday, 12 till 2 p.m., that kind of thing, you know. Mm. It's like, no, no, yeah, no, but- no, no, don't do it. Yeah, I agree. I think people should just get lost a bit more. And again, like Google Maps is amazing as well, you know, because you can see photos of the things before you get there. But yeah, I encourage people. And it's kind of it seems counterintuitive being in like the travel guide publishing industry or something telling people not to. They should read up on travel fish before they go. And then when they get there, they Mm. should just go wander off somewhere, I think. Exactly. You know, ask your driver, you know, if you've got a driver or ask. I find hotel staff are often really useful. Um, not like, I don't mean like concierges and stuff, but like, where should I eat? Where do you eat? You know, what do you do on the weekend? That kind of stuff. And sometimes, obviously, it's not going to be very appealing. 
Um, but other times it's how you find these things that you're not going to find anywhere else, you know. Um, and it can be quite cool and interesting. It might not always be interesting for somebody else, but, you know, it's, that's the gamble. So, I mean, we're talking about this in, in large part because over-tourism is such a, a major issue in tourism now. I mean, just kind mm -hmm. of, you know, put on your dream cap here, Stuart. What do you think the future of travel in the region looks like sort of t a decade out from now? Uh, it's pretty grim. Mm. Um, I mean, realistically, in, in 10 years, if there's not serious changes made to how people are managed and, and tourism targets and that kind of thing, mm -hmm. um, I mean, there, there's going to be vast parts of this region that I loved in the 90s that I just will never want to go to again. Um, and I don't think anybody else will either. Like the fragile uh, coral reefs, the beaches, uh, completely trashed islands, um, that kind of thing. It's like the tourism boards at some stage are going to have to say, look, are we about profitability or sustainability? Is there going to be something? Do we want to have something to be there for our grandkids? Mm. Or, or are we just going to say, screw it and let the developers um, make a quick buck? Um, you know, I mean, the solutions are out there. Like, people know what what needs to be done. Like, the tourism needs to be limited. They need to have, whether it's ticketing or other people management solutions to, to just limit how many people are coming into a place, you know. Um, so they need to do it. <laughs> well, it seems to me at the same time that they are, like, certain government tourism agencies or just investors and in, in tourism and whatnot tend to be starting to promote alternative destinations, let's say Lombok over Bali or Isan instead of, you know, central Thailand. Um, sure. I, I mean, I'm even promoting Eastern Cambodia now, which is finally, I think, going to start to get uh, a bit more tourists. Um, right. What are some of your favorite uh, kind of up and coming or less known places that you think people should check out now? Um, while it's still pretty cool. Well, I think in Thailand, Isan has always been the, the, the one part of the country that is absolutely fabulous, that the TAT is just um, consistently undersold, you know. I mean, you've got, like, um, the Khmer temples and, and Khao Yai, um, but that's it. I mean, that's all that you ever see in TAT stuff about Thailand for, for that region. Um, but you've got the whole Mekong River area, which is beautiful. The food is fabulous. Um, and they could be doing a lot more there. And now, like, because there's so many border crossings, it's, um, I mean, compared to the 90s, it's just obvious gateways, like, that you can link up and say, you know, this is... Northeast Thailand and southern Laos and central Vietnam, you know, fly into Bangkok, fly out of Da Nang, that kind of thing. Um, and that's where the tourism boards, between the three of them, like using those three countries as an example, uh, could really work together to say, look, here's some, some great travel and some really interesting experiences that you could do. And when, when punters are traveling through those areas in that kind of a manner, they'll get a better appreciation of how the, the, the countries are intermingled, you know, and how, why is it that they speak Lao in Isan? And, it's, you know, it's that kind of thing, you know, which I think is also interesting and 
gives the tourist a better um, a better depth of understanding of the country. Yeah. Okay, Stuart, here's here's a bit of a tough one to wrap things up here. I mean, sure. Stuart has time on his hands. He's got some money in his wallet. How do you find places to visit? What attracts you? Me personally, yeah. Uh, I, I want I want a be- I want a beach with no tourists on it. Um, so, like, I spend as Eastern Indonesia. I, I like a lot mm-hmm. um, because the beaches are still well. They they have like rubbish, but the reefs and everything are still in a pretty good state, and they're very undeveloped. So it's very simple travel, which is what I prefer. Um, and there's not a lot of other tourists, you know. Um, I'm not single, so I don't need to uh, canoodle with other backpackers. Um, and so that's sort of my element, you know. I travelled a lot in, in Thailand in the 90s and uh, islands like Lippe in the far south I wouldn't return to because they were so fantastic when I went there. It's that kind of thing if you, you don't want to go back to a place to spoil your, your memories. Um, mm-hmm. and, but I, I don't want to be that guy that's sort of saying, oh, you should have been here yesterday kind of thing. Um, but uh, in some cases in Thailand, yeah, I think that's the case. But yeah, if, if I've got money and time, then yeah, Eastern Indonesia is absolutely where you'd find me. Okay, perfect. Hey, thanks so much for your time, Stuart. Uh, we're going to have you back uh, in, in a few months because uh, you're a great guy to talk to about tourism. And also, I really appreciate Travel Fish. So thanks for all your hard work on that. Uh, my pleasure. Yeah, thanks, Stuart. Uh, good stuff. Uh, I think we could talk for hours, but uh, we try to keep it to 30 minutes just so that we can have our guests come back again another time. Yeah, no worries. You know, it's always really fun to talk to someone who's also in kind of the, the travel guide, information, publishing, online, whatever you want to call it nowadays, just because like there's so much information out there. Like just Google Maps alone has photos and reviews of every little waterfall, beach, viewpoint, temple, you name it. Um, but at the same time, there's there's guys like Stuart that are still out there, still researching and finding the cool little mom and pop guest house to share with travelers who, who really care to, to get good information like that. Yeah, I, I admire it because, you know, I, I just turned 45 and I realize now there's a certain level of comfort I need when traveling. So, I mean, Stuart still really gets off the beaten path there. When we were talking about, you know, what does he look for in, in you know, a place to travel? I realize everyone's got limited time when they travel. They don't maybe have the time yeah. that you or I or Stuart has. But you know what? Everyone wants to go to that new place, the undiscovered place, the quiet place. So kind of throw the challenge out there to travelers in your trip, like make two nights for somewhere and just look at somewhere in a map or find that place that you've heard something about, but not much and go there. Like the worst that can happen, kind of like Stuart said, is like, you don't like it, but like you'll probably (laughs) still have fun. You'll probably, if you chat with locals, you'll still meet someone cool. You'll do, you'll be invited for a drink somewhere, right? Like that's how those places eventually become hip and popular. Yeah, you know, because people ask me lots of times over the years, like, I want a place that, like, is really, like, pristine and quiet, but has, like, some happening nightlife and, like, a nice spot. <laughs> yeah. so, you know, like, and they're like, they're, like, you can't, you can have one or the other for the most part, you know, and, and mm. you know, Stuart talking about places that he won't return to just because they wouldn't live up to the the experiences he had prior to that. And at the same time, though, there are, like, he, he likes to go to Eastern Indonesia. Indonesia is this huge country so there's plenty of unspoiled beaches but there's still lots of you know little off the beaten path kind of places like we were saying just outside of Ubud you know so I think uh, 
Yeah, I like the fact that he still reads and does the research and everything and look on maps and think about places you might want to go explore, but then go, you know, take take the adventure, you know, because that's what's going to happen. If you don't like the place you're going to, you should try and like the, the, the getting from A to B part, you know, try and uh, make an adventure out of it and enjoy the experience. Um, and you might just get lucky and discover, you know, this beautiful place or, or you'll get stuck in the rain and you'll find this cool little family run coffee shop. And I think it's those memories that are the best from travel, not just, uh, you know, that you got your photo in front of the merlion. Yeah, I agree. It's when I think of my favorite travel memories, there are those odd, weird little circumstances where you met someone or you spent some time with someone. And, you know, there's there's obviously places you have to see, like Angkor, the temples of Angkor are getting overrun. But hey, I mean, you've got to see Angkor. But I've recently had a conversation with two different people about going to Kyoto. And Kyoto in Japan, like, I, I really enjoyed it. It's beautiful. But the difference between my visit in 2007 and then 2016 was staggering. And there was so many people. And while I think Kyoto is a beautiful city and I really like the, the paths along the river and the temples were nice, I've sort of recommended to the last couple people that asked, I said, go to another secondary town. Like you as a foreigner are probably not going to know any difference between the raked stone garden in whatever <laughs> town you go to versus the UNESCO World Heritage Site raked stone garden. Like, it's that pack there now that I really think, okay, you want to tell all your friends that went to Kyoto, you went to Kyoto, but like, I think it's worth going somewhere else. Yeah, at the same time, though, I think there's easy ways around that as well. Like maybe going to Kyoto when it's like off peak season, go during some kind of Japanese holiday where Japanese people like to travel overseas. Or even like you say, Angkor, like it's a it's too much of a generalization to say like Angkor mm. is, is over touristy. Like I could go walk around Angkor Archaeological Park all day and barely see another person just because I don't spend all my time like at the Bayon or Angkor Wat. You know, there's... True. Numerous temples right around the corner. Again, if you just like explore a little bit, be like, hey, let's check this place out. You know, uh, it's it's not necessarily mentioned in the guidebook, but uh, someone told me that it's pretty cool. I think that could go for anywhere, you know, like uh, just like, again, in Kaosan Road, you know, even in Bangkok, because you and I have lived in Bangkok for many years. Um, mm. There's all sorts of little nooks and crannies of the city that are just fascinating. And I think you'll find them if you just like spend the morning of your first day going walkabout, you know, and just wandering down like some roads and, and checking out your neighborhood. Uh, I think there's some unexplored things uh, that the tourists don't necessarily go to just because they're they're not looking, you know. Yeah, yeah. No easy uh, solution here. Before we sign off, absolutely want to ask you, everyone listening, to please support us on Patreon. Trevor and I do this for free out of the goodness of our hearts. And you know what? Our hard costs are probably about $50 US each episode out of our own pocket. And we'd like to start at least kind of, you know, turn in a couple dollars profit on this thing just to have something in the coffer. So if you look at the links on our show notes, you'll see some links to Patreon. Sponsorship starts at a dollar and goes up from there. Thanks for showing us some love. Let's get some uh, funds rolling in there. So Trevor, why don't you take us out of this thing? Yep. Thanks for joining me today, Scott, as usual, mm, and uh, for arranging Stuart to be on. That was a great guest. I guess I'll have to try and come up with the next one. Otherwise, yeah, uh, you and I will be sitting down together here next week, and hopefully we'll maybe we'll do a favorite watering holes part two. We should. All right. Thanks for listening. Adios. 
Thanks for joining us on Talk Travel Asia. We look forward to sharing with you again soon. Hey, Scott, do you remember the time we walked on top of the wall at Angkor Thom and Cambodia?